Welcome to the Business Done Differently podcast, where we believe whatever is normal, do the exact opposite, and that standing out is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. Today's guest is one of the most prolific authors and speakers of our time. USA Today has named him one of the three most in-demand business speakers in the world, and he's delivered more than 1,200 speeches in over 100 countries. He's the author of Reinventors, Less is More, High Speed Company, Think Big, Act Small, Hit the Ground Running, and it's not the big, they eat the small, it's the fast, they eat the slow. Personally, he's made a huge impact on me, and his books have transformed our businesses, and he's become one of my mentors from afar. So today, I am fired up to welcome the one and only Jason Jennings to the show. Welcome, Jason. Jesse, it is long overdue. I am delighted and thrilled to be with you. I really am. <laughs> it was interesting. You know, I reached out to you so the listeners know it's probably about three years ago. And you make it a point to really reply to a lot of your listeners, your readers, everyone that's following you. And you said, let's have a conversation. And we had a conversation and you asked me about my story. But then you asked the question that I think you ask a lot of people is what's keeping you up at night? <laughs> and I remember thinking about that question and it hasn't changed for me in three years. Uh And I have the same answer, but I'd love to hear from you. You're still asking that question. What are you hearing? Okay, what I'm hearing today. So I have to give you this background. So for every speaking engagement I agree to do, whether it's a keynote speech or whether it's a half day or full day program, uh, I insist on spending about 90 minutes with the CEO, the person who ultimately owns the event. And then I conduct 12 other interviews with other key leaders or people who will be associated with the event. So every year, that's somewhere between 700 and 1,000 conversations that I get to have. Forget the book research, that's separate. Just for speeches and workshops, it's somewhere between 700 and 1,000 conversations. And you're right, the question I ask everybody, you have to get to know them a little bit and learn a little bit about them and their story and what they're doing so they feel comfortable with you. And, And then I say, look, you sound like somebody who probably sleeps very well every night, but let me ask you the question anyway. What's keeping you awake at night these days? What do you find yourself obsessing about, thinking about? What are the potential speed bumps in your organization, things that could slow you down? And it is amazing what I've heard during more than 20,000 of these conversations, but more importantly, what I'm hearing today. The first thing that I hear from everybody I talk to, I was just in Detroit last week. I was in India a couple of weeks ago. It goes to all countries in the world, and it's people. How do I find, hire, engage, grow, and keep the right people. Most organizations, and it's especially true in this tight talent market, but it's true all the time, finding great people. So that is the number one thing that I hear. And I find that most companies, they don't say this publicly, but that most companies, small, medium, and large, are very much like a hamster running around on a little wheel inside a cage, round and round and round and round, higher, Hire, recruit, train, on board, they leave, replace, hire, train, recruit, they leave, over and over and over and over again. So that is the number one thing that I hear. The second thing that I hear, and the reason I have these numerically in order, is because I do a report once a year where we review all 800 conversations to come up with the math, to come up with the numbers. So the second thing that I hear is not long ago, I had a CEO, I was in the middle of the conversation, And uh, I started asking the question, what keeps you awake at night? And uh, he said, hold on a second. And he said, I got to close my door. So he came back to the phone and he said, let me tell you something. He said, I know. He said, we've got some stupid theme for this year's conference. He said, I can't remember the theme from last year. I can't remember the theme from the year before. Sometimes I wonder why we even do this event. He said, so I don't care what my other people have told you, but let me tell you what the real concern is. He said, I just need some help lighting a fire under everybody's ass. He said, we have to move or we're going to get chewed up and spit out. So speed is certainly number two. It's the number two thing that I hear about. The number three thing that I hear about is, and every time, this has now happened three times since my first book came out 20 years ago, every time we either have a meltdown in the economy, like we did with the dot-com bust in 2001, or the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009, and now the uncertainty that seems to be perking in the marketplace. I just read the Wall Street Journal again this morning, early this morning, and I mean, there are no signs, but everybody's getting nervous. It's been a long, long expansion that's gone for 10 years. Uh, the United States has had many recessions, and variably, we're going to have another one. It's, it's kind of like they're beating the tom-tom drums. 
And whenever that happens, people want to get sticky with their customers. Now, this is something that you are the maestro of, and you've created a career of being sticky with customers. Most companies don't. I mean, when business is good and people are coming in the door and the cash register is ringing, I mean, they're just in hog heaven. However, the moment that it appears that might go away or that something might endanger that, all of a sudden, they want to become solution providers. All of a sudden, they want to get very sticky with customers. And that's what I'm hearing right now. I was just out with a group of people saying, our salespeople have to stop selling stuff. They have to begin selling solutions. Well, I've heard that refrain over and over and over again during my life. The problem is that people who sell stuff can never be a solution provider. You can't do it. So if you want to have a solution providing organization, you got to fire all the people who sell stuff and replace them with people who are capable of, uh, of providing solutions to people. Few companies are willing to do that. So they pay lip service to this being sticky with customers. So they say they want to be sticky with customers, but they're not prepared to go there. So that's the third thing I hear. And I guess the fourth thing on the list, if I recall, and it comes, I, I suppose it ties into the first one, is how do I get people more engaged? How do I get people shooting at the same target? If I could just get everybody shooting at the same target, we would be light years ahead of where we are. So those are the four things I, I hear most frequently in almost every conversation. And again, I want to repeat, regardless of region of the world, whether it's India, whether it's Asia, whether it's Europe, whether it's South America, I'm hearing the same things from all the regions of the planet. Mm, it's fascinating, you know, when, because you're talking about the number one, keeping and finding the right people and lighting a fire and the stickiness and the clarity. But you didn't actually have any titles of your books that, but they all cover that. Because right. if you have purpose, if you're reinventing, if you're doing great things, people want to be a part of that company. Of course they do. And here is another little problem. Let me draw a little picture. I, I want you to pretend that I'm drawing a triangle right here. And it's Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, a study that has been validated by scores of other studies since it was first unveiled in, in the late 1940s. It's what people are looking for in their lives. And across the bottom is everybody is looking for food, clothing, and shelter. And then the second little rung on the triangle is they're looking for safety. They want to know that they're likely to continue to have food, clothing, and shelter. So those are the first two rungs in the triangle. The next rung is being loved and belonging to something bigger than yourself. And the next rung is having incredible self-esteem about what you do. And then the final rung is the achievement of your full potential. Well, the problem is there are still so many companies. I'm a fiscal conservative. I'm not way out there in the ether someplace. But the problem is there are so many companies that are still not paying a living wage. I mean, they really aren't. And people are so concerned about their food, clothing, and shelter, and their safety. A lot of Americans are one paycheck away from being out of their apartment or being not able to fix their car. And guess what? If that's where you are, down in the bottom of the triangle, in search of food, clothing, and shelter, barely squeaking by and not sure you're going to have continuation of that, you cannot get on board somebody else's purpose mm. because you've already got a purpose. Yes. And that purpose is called survival. <laughs> that purpose is called survival. Yes. And so if all you're worried about is survival, you can't get on board somebody else's purpose. It might be the best thing in the world you could do for yourself, but it's not possible. Yes. I mean, if you don't know where the monthly rent is coming from, if you don't know how to buy food for the kids, if you can't afford to bring one of your kids to a doctor's visit. I mean, if I talk to you about getting on board my purpose train, <laughs> I mean, you know, I got a deaf ear. Yes. I got a deaf ear. And so one of the things that I find in all of our research is that truly purpose-driven companies want one thing. They want their people to do financially very well. Mm. They want their people to do financially very well, and they really look forward to taking care of their people. I'll give you one quick example. Uh, you don't have it on the East Coast or the Midwest. In and out Burger. I mean, it's a, it's a fabled, legendary company. Yes. And, and the milkshakes and burgers happen to be very, very good. Well, I don't do many fast food hamburgers, but I would say three or four times a year, I'll go to an In-N-Out Burger. And so here I was, and I know a lot of you viewers and listeners are going to say, oh my God, that's California, that's wacko, that's out of line. And it's not. So there's a huge sign as I'm going into In-N-Out Burger last week. Join our team, starting wage, $18 an hour plus benefits. But what I find fascinating is, what I find fascinating is that the lines are out the door, the prices are reasonable, 
I mean, you can get a burger and a milkshake for about five bucks. Now, down the road, about a thousand feet, is McDonald's. They're now advertising that they're paying their people $17, $18 an hour. But what they've done is they've increased the price of their hamburgers to $10. Guess what? I am not paying $10 for a McDonald's hamburger. Well, I did it once a couple of weeks ago. I'm never doing it again. Never doing it again. And there's nobody in the store. So how, in the store. how can In-N-Out Burger do that? Because they have an incredible quality product. They get everybody on board the purpose train. I mean, it is a brand that everybody wants to be associated with. It is cool. They religiously work the supply chain, I mean, to keep their costs as low as they possibly can. I mean, they run it like a fine oiled machine. If you're running, and there are no franchised in and out burgers, but if you're running in and out burger, you will make $200,000 to $250,000 a year if you're a store manager. Wow. And the same story is Chick-fil-A on this side, what Chick-fil-A is doing on the exactly. East Coast. Exactly. It, it's fascinating. I mean, I've heard they're doing $3 million more per store than McDonald's. Yes. Their next Mexican better, and they're closed 52 Sundays a year. Yes, yes, yes. And the other thing is, they really want their people to do well financially. Yes. They really want their people to do well financially. And I've seen some numbers about what a Chick-fil-A store manager makes and what the people within the operation make. They really want to spread the wealth. So I think if I put that all in a bag and shake it and take it out, one of the big findings is everybody is going to be in one of two types of business. You're either going to be in a purpose-driven business You're going to lead it with good stewardship. You're going to understand that you have five constituencies. You have your people, the workforce. You have your customers. You have your vendors and suppliers. You have your owner or shareholder. And you have the planet. And your job as an effective leader is to improve the lives of all five members of those constituencies. The day and age of saying, well, screw the little people. I mean, for God's sake, don't let them know how much money we're making, because if you do, God forbid, they're going to want to raise. That's over. Those people are dinosaurs. Those people who say, screw the environment. And I mean, dump loads. Of, they're going to get found out. You've got five constituents, and the leader's role is to make everything better for all of those members of the constituency. So that's the type of leader you're going to become. And I will tell you that the good news is, the good news is, 20 years ago, when I was started to talk about this stuff after they viewed my first book, I mean, people would say, oh, airy fairy stuff. You better talk to HR. That's where everybody holds hands around the campfire and sings Kumba. Yeah. I mean, my job is to maximize the profit of this organization. I don't think there's a CEO today that doesn't get the reality of what they have been called to do. So you're going to have those type of businesses or you're going to have the businesses selling stuff. Hmm. But if the only thing you have to bring to the table is selling stuff, paying people as little as possible, and trying to squeak by, we all know what's going to happen. I travel uh, several hundred thousand miles a year, and a lot of that time brings me through small towns in America, villages in America as I fly into a metropolitan area, maybe spend a Sunday afternoon exploring the area. And what have you got on main streets in America? Shut, closed, shuttered, gone away, gone away, gone away, gone away, because they couldn't get with what the new model is. I want to dive into that, and I, I think, but first... The question that every uh-huh. leader should ask themselves, just what you said, is focus first. How are you improving the lives of your own people, of your right. employees? And it's not how are you improving their life at work? How are you improving their life's general? It's so fast because like companies don't think like that. I, I recently heard Jason Free from Basecamp talk about, you know, instead of cash bonuses, they give trips to go all over the uh-huh. world to see things. You know, they pay for their development. They pay for their gym memberships, make their lives better. And when you start doing that, everything else takes care of itself. But it's so tough for a business owner to say, that's an expense as opposed to an investment. Right. He's absolutely spot on. I mean, you have to care about the prosperity of your people. One of the greatest cases I've ever written about in my books is the story of O'Reilly Automotive. It's an incredible story back in 1956, the year I was born, Charlie O'Reilly was running a small auto parts store in Springfield, Missouri, and he was 72 years of age. And the owners brought in a consultant, and the consultant said, well, you know, the store is doing fantastic, but the manager's 72 years of age. We need to fire the old fart and get somebody new in there. So Charlie O'Reilly was fired. And presumably at 72, you'd go and sit on a lounge around your front porch and while away the golden years. But he got pissed off. 
And so he rented the building across the street. And people said, what are you going to do, Charlie? And he said, I'm going to open up an auto parts store. And all 12 people who had worked for him said, we want to come to work for you. And he said, you can't. You can't unless uh, you put some money in. And so some people put two or $300 in. I guess one guy second mortgaged his house back in 1956, came up with $2,000. And the night before they were going to open the store, Charlie O'Reilly got them together. And here's what he told them. He said, we are going to offer the greatest, most engaging customer service in the world. Now, note, he didn't say in Springfield. He didn't say in Missouri. He didn't say in the United States. He said in the world. And he said, let me tell you how we're going to do that. We're going to do that. We're going to offer the greatest customer service in the world by making the customer number two. Well, presumably what people would, duh. He said, we have to make you number one. If we make you number one, that's the only way we can ever hope to offer the greatest customer service in the world. I find this fascinating that today, if you go to work for an O'Reilly Automotive store and you're selling parts over the counter because they continue to grow so quickly with so much runway ahead of them, by the time you're doing a good job at that, there's a promotion for you. And by the time you're good at that, there's another promotion for you. But listen to this, Jesse, if the biggest thing you ever aspire to is being a store manager, O'Reilly Automotive store, a store manager, and you spend 35 years with the company, everybody has walked away with more than $1.75 million in stock in their retirement account, and they leave wealthy. That's because there's a company that gets it. Greg Hensley, who just stepped down as CEO, I was talking to a couple of years ago, and I said, so uh, are, you are you doing anything this summer, any vacation? And he said, well, I already took my two weeks vacation and so I've only got one week more, so I'm saving that. Now, this is the CEO of the company. And I said, wait a minute, tell me about that. He said, well, I get the same amount of vacation everybody else gets. In most other companies, the CEO doesn't count the vacation days. Yes. They really, I, I, they just don't. They yes. don't. So all the rules and vacation days and sick time off apply to everybody in the organization. It's a very egalitarian organization committed to everybody doing financially well. How could you not love that? I love it. I love it so much. I mean, you know, uh, the name of our company is Fans First Entertainment, but yep. people don't know internally, our biggest fans are our own people, our employees. Right. So we're trying to right. make them the biggest fans then to make our customers our biggest fans. <laughs> You got it. It's the way to do it. So, all right. You mentioned there, talking about main streets and the main streets, we, we've all been through them. They're all shut down, not companies anymore. I mean, we think outside, like we're thriving. The economy's doing very, very well, but main streets are dying. And you showed in reinventors the statistics about companies that are no longer on the top 500 companies. It's right. staggering. I mean, are companies still dying? Because I want to get into reinventors, which inspired yes. me so much. What are the statistics you're showing? I mean, we, we see iconic companies going down every single day. Well, if you take the first list of the Fortune 500 companies, I mean, I, this is just a fascinating bit of information that most people have never processed. So when the first list of the Fortune 500 companies was published about 50 years ago, the, here are these 500 names. Today, 98% of them are gone. 98%. But now think about this. These are the companies that had the brawn. They had the brains. They had the financial resources. They had the best minds in the business working for them. And they couldn't figure it out. And what does it all come down to, I think? And I generally try to stay away from judgments because I like to be involved in pure research. But the thing that I repeatedly see over and over and over again is a sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm. I have been here for so long and I have, I've earned a right to continue to be in business and I don't need to change anything and I'm not going to change. And damn it, it's my right to exist the way I am. And that has played out over and over and over and over again. I mean, hundreds of thousands of times a year. I mean, store closings this year, I track them on an almost weekly basis in the Wall Street Journal. Store closings by, I think it was July, were greater than all the store closings in the calendar year last year. Yep. So it continues to happen. And I, I, I think the Amazon effect is that it is going to continue to happen. I had a workman here last Saturday, and we were just doing a few household projects. I like to do that once in a while when I'm off the road in the weekend, but I'm not really qualified to do it. So I always have to have <laughs> a qualified handyman to, to do the work with me. And I noticed that the handle on a sliding door from the greenhouse was loose. And I said, can, Andres, can you fix this? And he played with it for a couple of minutes. And he said, the screws are stripped. And he said, I, I think we need to get a new one. And I said, okay, so what's the name? He gave me the name and I brought it up on Amazon. And it's like a $25 thing will be delivered this afternoon. Well, let me ask you, what are you gonna do? Am I gonna go out in search of a hardware store where the people are nasty? 
And I mean, you can't find anybody to help you. Or am I going to go on Amazon and order this $24 part that's going to be delivered to my home within four hours and install later that day? Listen, we're going to lose millions of more businesses to this. And it's not because Amazon is a giant, predatory, horrible company. It's because they work relentlessly to improve the experience for the customer. Yes. Why would I want to go to a store if I get everything, get whatever I want in four hours? But there is hope because there is hope for businesses because I believe, yes, yes online digital is huge. But as you know, the business that we're in, everything yep. is about the experience. Jason, at our, our ballpark, we don't have a digital school board. We don't have right. suites. It's a 1926 stadium. We just right. try to make sure people come out and have a great time. And I think yep. the part of the reinventing is also, like you said, don't hesitate on letting go. And the reinvention right. killer is yesterday's breadwinner. And yep. to give you an example of that, it's like we just eliminated sponsorship at our stadium which sounds right. crazy, but we believe wow. that doesn't add to the fan experience. And so we're right. eliminating something that made a lot of money for us, but it doesn't yes. work, we don't think, and it doesn't add a great fan experience. And same thing with all, you mentioned a lot of different companies that were able to do this well. Get rid of some stuff, be willing to kill. And this, that's one of the reinvention techniques that you teach. It is. I was thinking about you just this morning and not because we were going to be speaking today, but on page three of the second section of the Wall Street Journal today, there's a great story about all of these huge stadiums that are being built around the United States without a sports team. Without a sports team as the anchor, because the concert business is exploding and it's becoming so huge, concert and entertainment business is becoming so big that they actually see having a sports team in the facility as a hindrance to booking all the dates they want to book. And that's what you sell, of course, which is incredible entertainment. Uh, you don't sell baseball, you sell an incredible entertainment experience. So I have to ask you, I, I'm, I'm curious about you. So the year before you took over the team, how many fans attended games? What was the average in the stands? So there was a professional team there, a minor league yes. team, the Savannah Sandnats, and they had actual around four to 500 fans coming to the ballpark. Yeah, and what are you doing now? We're, we sell out of over 4,000, 4,200. <laughs> and every game's a sellout. Every game's sold out. We're fortunate. We have a way of, but it was a challenge. As the listeners know, we went through struggles and learning it. But I think that is where, Jason, I, I just so fascinated with the reinvention because you have to go where your customers are going, not where you're in love with previously. And I want to like really give some tips to these companies. Okay, all right. It's so fascinating to be like the Bill McQueen in the funeral home. I love yes. this. He, he said a quote in your book. Every business needs to turn what they do into a sufficiently memorable experience that people would be willing to pay admission to be a part of. A funeral yep. home that he's thinking, how would people want to pay admission to come to a funeral yes. home? And by the way, about six or eight months ago, he published a book about his experience there. It's absolutely a great read. I got a copy on Amazon. I mean, it's a, it's a great read. So give me the, let me give you the list yeah. of things that people yes. have to be willing to let go of yes. if they have any chance of reinventing themselves. Number one, and I talk about this so often, the list, I, I must dream about this list at night. Number one, same old, same old. Take a look at Sears. I remember about a year ago, I was going to go out Christmas shopping. And the family said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going out shopping. They said, well, which store are you going to? And I said, I, I said I'm going to go take a look at Sears. And they said, why? And I said, because I want to see how bad it is. I mean, when you get there. But there's a company that refused to let go of same old, same old. At one time, Sears had a thousand vice presidents in the Sears Tower in Chicago. And it was so many vice presidents running stuff that they had to have a separate credit union for the vice presidents. They had to have two Christmas parties because they didn't have a venue big enough to hold all the vice presidents. I mean, just imagine what a what an incestuous, bureaucratic, horrible mess they had on their hands. And none of them were close to the customer. So you, you have to be prepared to let go because what brought you to where you are is not going to bring you to where you want to be. So you have to be prepared to let go of same old, same old. Number two, you have to let go of ego. And this is the hardest one. What ego is, ego has nothing to do with confidence. Ego is when the boss has to be the smartest person in the room. Mm. So when everybody knows that the boss needs to be the smartest person in the room, what happens is anything that disagrees with the boss's point of view, the sharp edges are filed off. And so ultimately, the boss only gets what he or she wants to hear. And this is epidemic, the boss needing to be the smartest person in the room. Those are a couple of things that, I mean, you just have to work religiously and zealously to let go of. And the other one is same old, same old. I have one line that I use in most of my speeches, and it generally brings down the house. I tell them I'm going to explain the law of suckage to them. 
And everybody kind of looks, okay, what's the law of suckage? And I say, by the time you figure out you suck, you have sucked for a long, long, long time. And everybody goes crazy laughing because they can identify with it because they've experienced it, I mean, in the company that they're in right now. Yeah. What about kiss a lot of frogs? I love that one. Talk to me about examples of that one a little bit. All right. Well, you got to kiss a lot of frogs to find a prince. And I use that to uh, illustrate the story of making lots of small bets. Any organization, I don't care what size you are, if you're a local dry cleaner with six employees, a laundry dry cleaner with six employees, or if you're a big multinational company, you have to make lots of small bets. When Howard Schultz came back and took over Starbucks, Starbucks had gone from 13,000 stores to 12,000 to 11,000, 10,000, 9,000. Their revenues were down, I think it was it was not quite a third, but it was like 27 or 28%. He came back. The first thing he did is he took 10,000 Starbucks workers to New Orleans to help rebuild homes for victims of Katrina. And while there, he got together with them and he said, I want to apologize to you. And I'm not apologizing on behalf of Starbucks. I'm apologizing to you on behalf of me. He said, I never had any intention that Starbucks would just be dismissed as a neighborhood coffee store. He said, we were going to be a place where people could come to work and a part-time barista could become a full-time barista. A full-time barista could become an assistant store manager. An assistant store manager could become a store manager, an area manager, a regional manager. It was all about improving the lives of everyone. And I happen to believe that in his case. He and I, he's several years older than I am, but we, we went to the same university. He was the first person in his family to ever go to school to the university, Northern Michigan University, where he had a football scholarship. And so I was a freshman when he was a senior, but we got to know each other uh, quite well back then. So what they did, and he said, so how are we going to regain that? And he said, to do that, we have to make lots of small bets. And he said, if they work, they work, and we scale them. And if they don't work, they don't work. And we say, what did we learn from them? And so in most companies, if they had two or three big initiatives a year, I mean, they would be fully occupied. Starbucks did like 180 initiatives over an 18-month period of time. And they began immediately renovating all of their stores to make them look fresh, current, and contemporary. They began experimenting with beer and wine. They started Starbucks Petites, the dessert line. They bought La Boulangerie because they needed a supply chain to get sandwiches and foods inside the store. They were the first to offer Wi-Fi. I mean, just uh, the, the changes were coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. And one day, as the story goes, they were in a product planning meeting up in Oregon. And an intern said, how come we've never done anything with oatmeal. And everybody said, I don't know. Well, three weeks later, they were testing oatmeal, testing oatmeal in like 20 or 25 stores. I mean, within six months, they had it rolled out regionally. Within about 10 months, they had it rolled out nationally. And we estimate, because Starbucks does not break out the revenues this way, but myself and my research teams have figured that the average Starbucks sells about 25 to 30 oatmeals a day. There's now 30,000 stores around the world. We estimate that Starbucks probably generates somewhere between five and $700 million a year in oatmeal sales. And because it's such a low food cost, almost all of that becomes incremental profit. Mm. I mean, because it's incremental revenue, so there's no fixed cost to cover. And so a big part of that just becomes additional profits for the organization. So if you're going to make a lot of small bets as a leader, Number one, you have to be prepared to listen to everybody. That's number one. You have to be prepared to listen to everybody. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. Number two, I always look out at my audience and I say, how many of you have ever been skunked? Mm. And no, well, nobody knows what I mean by skunked. And I say, okay, here, let me tell you what skunked is. How many of you at some point in your career have come up with a great idea or something you thought would improve the business? And you thought about talking to the boss. You weren't too sure if you should. Could it be career limiting if the boss thinks it's a bad idea? And finally, one day, your husband, wife, or partner tells you to put some starch in your spine and go and talk to them. You go and say, boss, I've been wanting to talk to you about this idea. What is it? And you tell them the idea. And you either hear, we've tried that before. We're too damn busy sometime in the future. Not going to happen on my watch. I said, how many of you has that happened to? Every hand in the room goes up. Now, I ask him one more question. How many of you have done that to somebody else? Now the hand goes up and they sit there and just titter, 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 looking very embarrassed because of course they have. You have to listen to everybody. There can be no skunking. You have to go into it as an educational journey, as an educational journey saying, what will we learn from this? And you have to be prepared to fail fast. 
I mean, if it works, you implement your backup plan. If the backup plan doesn't work, you say, what did we learn from this? Let's move on to the next idea. I mean, when Dan D'Amico was the uh, chairman and CEO of Nucor Steel, the nation's largest steel company, and where the average steel worker makes $125,000, $130,000 a year, where they've never had a layoff in the history of the company, he says, we have a motto here at Nucor. He said, if it's worth trying at Nucor, it's worth failing at Nucor. Hmm. I mean, we'll just try something else. Keep the hits coming. Hmm. Keep the hits coming. And so, yeah, have to be able to embrace change. What I'm always reminded of is one Sunday after church, we live in Marin County, California, over the Golden Gate Bridge, but we go to church in San Francisco. And generally on Sunday, and we go to the early service at 9 o'clock. So generally when we come out at 10 o'clock, it's a little foggy and cool, and San Francisco is not known for nice weather until the afternoon when the fog burns off. But one day we walked out of church, it was bright and sunny. And I said, okay, I got a great idea. You know what we're all going to do? We're going to go to Fisherman's Wharf. We're going to pretend we're from Iowa or Nebraska or Michigan, and we're just going to be tourists in our own city. Oh, we don't want to do that. I said, well, no, we're going to do it. We're going to have fun, too. And we did. We ended up having a great day. But down there at Fisherman's Wharf, I saw the greatest T-shirt I've ever seen in my life. And it was worn by a man. He had to go 380 to 400 pounds. He was one big bubba, all right? One big guy with one big belly. And he had this T-shirt on. And up here on the top of the shirt, it said, Change is great. And down below in smaller letters, it said, you go first. (laughs) See, because, Jesse, we all say that we like change. Oh, of course I embrace change. I'm totally in favor of change. Uh, Who's there? Change. Not today, please. I'm too busy. I'm too occupied. Everybody says how open they are to change. But I find that to be BS and all of my going out and coming in and my work with companies all over the world. The only time people are willing to change there's one or two times. If you get a new leader, you get a chance to embrace change. The other one is if somebody takes the leader by the neck, grabs them by the nape of the neck, opens the door of the blast furnace, and puts their face close enough that their eyelashes and eyebrows get singed because they've seen the fires of hell, then maybe they're prepared to say, okay, let's change. And listen, and I'm also going to own that. Yeah. Not long ago, somebody told me. I don't know why I need to say I'm not overly the top religious, but one of the things I do is I enjoy going to church every Sunday. It's one hour. I enjoy it. It's been a rule in our house for a long, long time. And if I'm well, I go to celebrate my wellness. If I'm not feeling well, I go to, to want to become well. I like the people in, uh, in my Lutheran church in San Francisco. And so one day, not too long ago, I was reminded that it's a good thing you talk about change because you sure as hell don't like it yourself. You can't even skip church once in a while. Look, I struggle with change, too. We all struggle with it, but we have to own up to the fact that it's a struggle, own that, and just put some starch in our spine and take the first step forward and learn to embrace change. I love it. And I'll share personally this past summer, when you see things that work, you want to continue to do it. And it's Uh very hard to try new things. And Jason, as I shared, all of our games are all about the show. And we know certain promotions work. You get the whole stadium dancing, you get the whole stadium singing, you have this button, you have this button, and it works. And so halfway through the season, I realized we're doing the similar promotions over and over again. And I was like, is it because of my ego? Because I know that they'll work. So finally, I went to the staff. I was like, guys, let's pitch something. Let's just pitch any promotion you've got this afternoon. It was in the morning. And we had a whole staff, people that weren't even involved in promotions, literally ticket people, everyone. And they gave some of the most ridiculous, outrageous promotions. And we chose three of them. And these are the last two games of the year. And literally one was the living pinata where you actually put a person in a mascot costume and you had kids with little bats hit the costume with a person in it and throwing candy in the air. It doesn't make any sense. It's absolutely ridiculous. But the fans laughed so hard because it was something new and there was a complete ownership and you have to learn to let go. And I think as all leaders, it's a little bets. It won't hurt. And especially do you want to be known as a brand that does things differently and does things new? Or do you want to be a brand that's that's the way it always done? Right. It's fascinating. I thank you for sharing that because I finally had that realization. We're doing the same thing. We got to continue to reinvent. I want to do a quick little game here. All right. This is a reinvention debatable. This is a reinvention debate. All right. With you and me and technology versus human connection. So what I mean by that is say the self-serve kiosks that are at fast food restaurants, everywhere else. They even have robot restaurants now versus being served by humans. What are your thoughts? Are you thinking we need more of that technology, more human connection? As far as reinvention, I'm very intrigued. Okay. All right. So let me take you back to a speech I delivered two weeks ago in Bangalore, India. And for any of your viewers or listeners who 
quite familiar with Bangalore, India, it's the Silicon Valley of India. Every tech company has a huge presence in Bangalore, India as well. It feels like you're being in Silicon Valley. And I was talking to manufacturers, and this is going to bring me to the answer of your question. As I was interviewing all of these manufacturers, what they were telling me about is that, yes, they were very concerned about people. That was the first thing they talked about. But when I dug a little bit low, uh, deeper, what I found out is they're all concerned about automation. They're all concerned about uh, autonomous cars. They're all concerned about artificial intelligence and the impact that technology is going to have on them. And look, I mean, I'm not Nostradamus. I'm not a seer. I can't tell them what the future is going to look like. But here's what I told them. And that will give you the answer that I would give you to your question. I told them that if you're the only company with autonomous cars, it's going to be an incredible competitive advantage. If you're the only company with artificial intelligence, you're going to have an incredible competitive advantage. But guess what? Nobody is going to own those things. Everybody is going to have access to them. So it will never be a competitive advantage that will put you in the winning category because of autonomous cars or because of AI or because of robotics, because it's available to everyone. So the, the playing field just remains level. So at the end of the day, what does it come down to? If technology is not going to be the competitive advantage, then it's people. It's people who are going to be the competitive advantage. Now, I happen to like going in and ordering coffee or ordering food at a kiosk. I first experienced that about a year and a half or two years ago in, in Hong Kong. And I loved it because I didn't have to wait in line. I could place my order. I could watch my order being prepared and the number moving up. I knew exactly when I was going to get it. I enjoyed that experience. And I think that every company has an obligation to experiment with technology and AI and everything that can either reduce your costs, make you more efficient, give a more delightful customer service experience. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be a competitive advantage. People will continue to be the competitive advantage. Let me tell you, Jesse, about one more thing, if I might. So it took us 37 hours to fly from San Francisco to Bangalore, India. San Francisco, London, 11 hours, wait five hours, a 12-hour flight to Hyderabad, India, wait five hours, an hour-long flight to Bangalore. And the car from the Taj Hotel was going to be picking us up. And so it was a very nice, very affable, friendly Indian driver. And so I'm in the back of the car and I said, so how long have you been a driver for the Taj Hotel? And he said, driver for the Taj Hotel? He said, is that what you think I do? You think I'm a driver? You think I'm a chauffeur? He said, I, sir, am a brand ambassador for the greatest hotel organization in the world. He said, driving just happens to be what I do, but it's not the big picture. I am a brand ambassador for the greatest hotel organization in the world. Imagine if you could get every one of the people that work for you thinking, I'm not a ticket seller, or I'm not a clerk, or I'm not a cashier. I'm a brand ambassador for the greatest brand in the world. Man, when that happens to an organization, they flourish and they achieve the impossible. They achieve the impossible. And you'll never feel that necessarily with a robot or AI or technology. You won't see that feeling of like this person right. is so behind it, the empathy, right. they love the excitement. And so I, I'm with you. I mean, I appreciate technology. And even you, Jason, so sure, you talk about speed, 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 but you, you can't do speed without having people making you feel special. It's, How do you make it, people feel? Yeah. It, I mean, it's all people. And what you have to have, and it comes, it, it kind of comes back to where we began, is any organization that values its people, it fills in that block on the triangle of people's need to love, be loved, and to belong to something bigger than themselves. And the only way you can give them that is to have a purpose. And most organizations are delusional, I'm sad to say. They think they have a purpose, but what they have is a logo line, or they uh, have the purpose written behind the reception desk, or they send out a memo. If you're going to be a purpose-driven organization, you have to think about your purpose, celebrate your purpose every single day. It has to be the first and foremost thing on your mind and on the minds of everybody else. It's not like a tired old stupid vision statement, which has largely been discredited. It's not like a mission statement, which has been discredited. I mean, when young people today hear vision and mission, they roll their eyes back in their head. Uh, those words are not good for anything except buzzword bingo. It comes down to purpose. Now what happens is when you have a purpose built around doing well by doing good, and that's the big thing. The purpose can't be about making money. The purpose can't be about growing. The purpose can't be a metric. 
I mean, the purpose has to be Ingvar Kamprad. I remember my last conversation with him. He passed away last year. I think he was one of the greatest leaders of all. He said, look, furniture just happens to be what we do so we can serve. He said we could have been in any number of businesses. I mean, we exist to improve the lives of the many. He said, we don't cater to rich people. I mean, we've never tried to do a brand extension for wealthy customers. We know what we do. We exist to improve the lives of the many. And so I was teasing him that day, and we had been at a farmer's market, and he wanted to go to the farmer's market in the afternoon. And I said, why do you want to go in the afternoon? I'd like to go to the farmer's market in the morning, I mean, when everything's fresh. He said, aha, but the prices are cheaper in the afternoon. Now, here's a man who's reputedly was worth about $50 billion. And so for the first time ever, I, I said, Ingvar, I have to ask you a question. He was refolding aluminum foil to use again in the future. And I said, are you just cheap? And he looked at me and he said, and he always called me Mr. Jennings. He said, Mr. Jennings, he said, sometimes I think you get it and sometimes I think you don't. He was a man who had never flown business class in his life, even if the airlines wanted to upgrade him for free. He never stayed alone in a hotel room in his life because company policy says you share a room and steal the toilet paper and the pens and bring it back to corporate headquarters. Uh, the most expensive trip he ever took was with the founder of H&M, and they would take a two-week bicycle trip and stay in hostels in the Swedish countryside during the night. And he said, it's not because I'm cheap. He said, the bottom line is, we exist to improve the lives of the many. He said, how could we do that if we don't live like the lives of the many? He said, because if I flew in a private jet, everybody else in the company would want to fly in a private jet too. How can you fly in a private jet and serve the lives of the many? If I stayed in a $2,000 a night hotel suite, everybody else would think they were deserving of the same thing. How, how could we be improving the lives of the many? And so the purpose has to be very, very short. If it takes more than seven words, it's not a purpose. And if you have to explain it to someone, it's not a purpose. So it's got to be very, very short and memorable. It has to cause an aha effect. People either have to say, oh, I get that, and I want to be part of it. Or they have to say, oh, I, I get it, I understand it, but that's not my cup of tea. So it has to have an aha effect. You have to get rid of the people who don't want to be part of the purpose. And you just have to say, John, I have invited you on board our purpose bandwagon so many times. And I've explained the immense pleasure that it gives all of us, I mean, to have this big sense of purpose. But it's obvious that you don't want to be on board. And John, if you don't want to be on board, it must be very painful for you to do what you do. So why don't I help you? Find a position. I'm not firing you, but why don't I help you find a position someplace else where you're happier? Because Jesse, I'll tell you this: more organizations have been damaged by acts of internal subversiveness than they have by acts of external aggression by competitors. So you can't have people. Oh, I'll go along, but I, I'll go along. No, you can't have. I'll go along. I mean, I tell companies all the time. About six months ago, I had a woman who's the president of a healthcare company. She jumped up in the middle of my speech and said, "Amen." Uh, and what I was saying is, look at the way we interview people. When we have a job opening, what do we do? We interview people for their qualifications. Now, that's stupid. That's stupid. We should be interviewing people and talking to people about our purpose and finding out if they want to be on board our purpose. If they want to be on board our purpose, then we can talk to them about their qualifications. But I'll tell you what, if they want to be on board our purpose... I'm going to find a spot for them. I love this. And obviously, it's so powerful. But the challenge, I think, for a lot of people is how do you simplify a purpose that actually resonates? And you gave a few examples. But even so, improve the lives of the many. Will everyone resonate with that? So, like, do you have other simple examples of great purposes? Sure. Because I'll share it. Like, we only talk about fans first. Fans first, fans first, fans first. But that may not be necessarily a purpose. We're saying about bring fans first to the world, fans first and always. But I'm just trying to get how can you simplify not only for us, but other businesses? Okay. All right. Let me give you a couple more. This is one of my favorites. And I wrote about them in the book, The Reinventors and the High Speed Company. So there's a bank based in Denver that nobody's ever heard of. It's called CoBank. It's not a small bank. It's about $110, $120 billion bank. And they're active in all 50 states and they have international lending offices. And so why has nobody ever heard of them? Because you can't go in and deposit a check or open an account there. They exist to serve farmers, ranchers, electrical, rural utilities, grain cooperatives, blueberry cooperatives, cranberry cooperatives, rural telephone cooperatives, water cooperatives in rural areas. And uh, here's what they do. When Bob Engel, who just stepped, recently stepped down as the CEO, took over, the company was in trouble. And in a very, very short time, he transformed the organization 
the average bank in the United States will generate about $50,000 in net profits per employee per year. So if you ever want to know what their profits are, ask them what their full-time equivalent headcount is, multiplied by about 50 grand a year, and that's about, Cobank does a million dollars a year in profit. They outpace the competitors by about 20 times. And I remember asking Bob Engel, I said, how in the world have you done this? How in the world have you pulled this off? And uh, he said four words. That's all it took. He said the transformation came about because of four words. And he said the words are, we serve rural America. And he said, Jason, I can't wait to jump out of bed in the morning and put my feet in the floor knowing that we are serving rural America. And what I tell people is, when anybody asks you what you do at CoBank, don't say loan officer or underwriter or in collections or an HR. Say what we do. We serve rural America. And then he said, I had to get rid of all of the people who didn't want to serve rural America. And he said, I had to fill up the ranks with people who wanted to serve rural America. I mean, who could get moist in their eyes at the thought of talking about serving rural America. And he said that led to everything else within the organization. It's one of the greatest turnarounds and business success stories in the United States, I believe. And I'm, I'm glad I was the first one who got to tell that story. So the great question would be, who do you serve and maybe how do you serve to help get you there? Who do you serve? How do you serve potentially? Well, you know the answer to that question. I mean, we serve rural America. Yeah. So you then identify who rural America is. I mean, who, who your target customers are. Well, I'm saying are. for any business, Jason, any oh, business yeah. could ask oh, that okay. question. Any business, yes. who do you serve? How do you serve? That may help someone get closer to finding their purpose. Let me tell you a story, which will be the answer for your, of your question. So, and I've got to disguise some of the players here because I'm going to say something very bad. So about five years ago, I was about ready to give a speech in Florida. And I was introduced to the woman who is the CEO of a company who was going to introduce me. And she had the introduction. And so she walked up on stage. I shook her hands and a very nice lady, a very nice woman. And she walked up on stage. She did the introduction. And like I said, she's the CEO of a large company. And it was a great introduction. So when she came up on stage, I, I shook her hand and thanked her. And then she went and sat down in the front row. And one of the things I noticed the most is that most CEOs don't sit in the front row and take notes because they're always looking around to see who is watching them take notes, because after all, they're already supposed to know all of this stuff. Well, she was writing, I mean, like a little kid starting school. She was writing page after page after page of notes, page after page after page of notes. And I never heard from her again until about a year and a half later, I got a call from her chief of staff who wanted to know what it would cost for me to come and talk to their top three or 400 leaders. So I agreed. What had happened is she had gone back to Chicago, the Midwest, and she had a very challenged organization she'd become the head of. Uh, young, smart people were leaving in droves because the business is not seen as sexy. And she called a meeting of her top leaders, and she said, why do we exist as an organization? What do we really, really do? And they came up, and I can't give you the four words, because if I did, then that would be the identification of the company, and that's not the part of the story. They came up with four words that describe their purpose. They began using them in everything. And she transformed the organization and became one of the top two or three most successful businesses of its type in the United States. Now, the company, her company, is owned by a much bigger Fortune 100 company. So now the CEO of the parent owner wanted to talk to me. And he read a couple of my books. And he called me up and he said, I think your book, Think Big, Act Small, is the best damn book I've ever read in my life. And he said, I'd like, I'm going to have a meeting with our 28 CEOs of our 28 operating units in Chicago. And I want to hire you. And all we're going to do is work on purpose. By the way, the end of the, the conclusion of the story is coming up. So I spend a day with these 28 CEOs. Now, they've already had a woman who runs one of their units achieve, achieve unbelievable success by having a purpose, okay? I think it probably would have been sufficient to say, we don't need to have a purpose, let's just get her purpose. But then of course, that would be her purpose, it wouldn't be my own purpose. And egos get involved, and at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the CEO of the holding company, this Fortune 100 company, comes up to me and says, this is the best day we've ever spent as a company. And he said, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna put together a committee to come up with our purpose. Jesse, the committee has been meeting for a year and a half, and they don't have a purpose. So where does the person come from? The purpose comes from Jesse Cole. 
The purpose comes from Jason Jennings. The purpose comes from the purpose, the person in charge. And it reveals everything about the person in charge. The purpose of the organization, and if it's a noble purpose built around doing well by doing good, you will have instant buy-in. A purpose never comes for a committee or a group of people. That's how those old stupid vision statements were formulated. They'd have a weekend retreat at a cabin someplace with a cardboard, a couple of cardboard cases and boxes of wine and a couple of uh, cases of beer and sit around doing this kumbaya exercise and trying to come up with their vision statement. That's not the way you come up with a purpose. And it's the most simple thing in the world. I don't use many military or sports examples because it's a turnout for some people, leaves women sometimes feeling that I'm using male-dominated examples. But it's kind of like if you're in the military at war with somebody, what, what do you want to do? What's your purpose? The purpose is to win the war. That's the purpose. It's to win the war. That is not only your purpose, but your purpose is also your strategy. You got to remember every organization needs one strategy, and that's the achievement of their purpose. Everything else is tactical. And when I talk to people, I sometimes have to hold myself back because, well, now my strategy for dealing with the kids is this. My strategy for buying a car is this. That's all bullshit. No, no. We all have one strategy. What is the one big objective that you're trying to live, you're trying to achieve, you're trying to get done? And then everything else you select is a tactic designed for the achievement of that one big strategic objective, which is also the purpose of the organization. Where does it come from? It comes from when something happens. Number one, great leaders today who drive purpose-driven organizations for the benefit of all the stakeholders allow something to happen. And it's this. If you only run your business from your head, you're going to run a hard, cold, calculating business. If you only run your business from your heart, you're going to be out of business. Great purpose-driven leaders have allowed their head to meet their heart. And they have answered the most important question that anybody will ever answer. And I always tell people the place to ask this question is looking in a mirror. Because unless you're a nutcase, unless you're a sociopath, unless you're a psychopath, you cannot look in the mirror and lie to yourself because you'll start laughing. You'll start laughing. I mean, I've been in the gym six days a week for 36 years in my high school graduation weight. I'm in damn good shape. Imagine me looking in the mirror and saying, Jason, you've got the cut ripped body of a 19 year old. Well, I burst out laughing. I mean, because that's not the case. So I urge everybody to look in the mirror and ask the question, is my, li is my life going to be more about me or is my life going to be more about others? And the moment that you can say, I want my life to be more about others and helping other people achieve what they want to achieve and get what they want to get, then you're ready to announce your purpose. Mm. And I know we got to wrap up now, but you say not leaders, but good stewards. And that is a message that you share all the time. It's, all the time. And all the time. It's extremely powerful. I do want to finish. There's a rapid fire here, okay? A little rapid uh -huh. fire to finish out. Tool time. What's the most important tool you have in your business toolbox? In my business toolbox, it's having somebody great who runs my social media. It's having a great assistant who shares and speaking manager who shares my purpose and it's remembering to take my gym clothes every time I go on a speaking trip. <laughs> it's a great answer. You stay focused on the main thing. You keep the main thing the main thing while everyone else is doing that. That's huge. Question time. You already said one of the best questions is, what keeps you awake at night? But what's another great question that you ask? Because if you want better answers in life, you've got to ask better questions. Yeah. My favorite question that I ask people, and everybody should know this, and everybody who reports to you, is you have to do a discovery conversation. And you say, you know you've been working here now for six months or 12 months and you're doing a great job and I want to be a great leader, but you know, I've realized that I could probably be a better leader to you if I knew a little bit more about you. So let's get away for a half hour and sit down and have a conversation. I just want to know a little bit more about you and where that conversation ends up is tell me about you. I mean, tell me about growing up and then it eventuates to, and where do you want to end up? Where do you want to end up? What are the important things in life to you? And when I know that somebody wants to have a robust family life with a couple of kids, I know they want to own a home. I know they want to be active in the community. I, want, I know that they want to be promoted. I say, well, you know what? What are you willing to do to get there? Because all we have are time and money. And most of us have more time than we have money. 
But I mean, are you willing to take night courses and work toward a graduate degree? I mean, to achieve that, I mean, if you want to be a CEO or I mean, whatever it is, what are you willing to invest of time and money to get there? And once I know your story and your dreams and your hopes and your wants, then I can be a very, very effective leader. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Quickly, final four. What is one thing that you've done to stand out in business and in life? The most important standout and accomplishment in my life. It's not being the youngest owner of radio stations in America. It's not owning a big consulting company that consulted all over the world. It's not having a string of New York Times bestsellers. It's not having done 12 or 1300 speeches in five or 600 workshops. It's not even having health. It is having met and fallen in love with someone when I was 20, who I'm now celebrating my 43rd anniversary with there. So now you've got my age. And that is the single most important accomplishment of my life. And I think it's just one. And you can never take it for granted. You have to work on it every day. 100%. If you were to give advice to someone, someone maybe younger, to stand out in business and in life, what advice would you give them? My advice would be to be unreasonable. When I'm doing speeches, at one point in my speech, not all the time, but it depends on the group. It depends on what the speech is. I'll take a handheld microphone and go in the audience. And I'll, I'll go up to somebody and say, are you a reasonable person? Well, yeah, I'm a reasonable person. Are you a reasonable woman? Well, I, I try to be reasonable in everything I do. And then I go to somebody else, are you reasonable? Well, yeah, of course, I'm a very reasonable person. And I said, well, I feel sorry for all of you. I said, I love what George Bernard Shaw wrote once when he said, for any progress of any kind, look to the unreasonable man or the unreasonable woman. For the reasonable person will just go along with whatever is being done but the unreasonable man or woman will force the world to conform to their vision of the way they think the world ought to be. He concluded, therefore, for any improvement in any field of endeavor, look to the unreasonable person. So when I'm speaking to young people, I say, number one, figure out what your purpose is and then be unreasonable about it. <laughs> love it. Love it. Final two here. What's the best advice you've received? Well, I'm going to let you in another secret. <laughs> when I've been studying all these companies for eight books, I ask people, CEOs, who their mentors were, who gave them the best advice. And I would say in about 98% of all cases, because they felt comfortable with me, they said, look, I didn't really have anybody. I just had a lot of people that I didn't want to be like. And I promised myself that if I ever got in this role, I wouldn't do the things that they did. I would say largely in my life, and I went to work when I was 13 as a disc jockey at the local radio station. There sure have been a lot of people who I said, I don't want to be like them. I, and I don't want to do the things that they do. I think I've had far more anti-heroes than heroes. The real heroes in my life are strong women, are my grandmother, uh, an immigrant who scrubbed floors on her hands and knees in doctor's offices. And I would ride on her feet behind her and who finished high school when she was 72 and went on to university. My mother who went on to occupy a big, big job in Michigan and never missed a day of work in her life, despite snowstorms that sometimes left three, four, and five feet of store, snow on the ground. She would hitchhike a ride 13 miles, and she would open up this big office, and then she'd start taking the phone calls from people who were two or three blocks away, saying they couldn't make it into work today because of the snow. I am a product of very, very strong women. So the positive influences in my life were all these incredibly strong women, but I've also been very molded and shaped by the people who I just said, that's wrong. I wouldn't do it that way. I couldn't do that. That's wrong. That's just not right. Mm. And so I guess I'm like Don Quixote, casting at windmills and will be casting at windmills for, for the rest of my life, just trying to end injustice wherever I see it. That's my story. And I'm straight into it. It's so powerful because it's not just about words. It's about what you see other people do. And I think most people answer that question with words, but it's you by seeing people, seeing how they are. That's really powerful. Last question here, Jason. How do you want to be remembered? Well, I want to be remembered as a hard worker, as a good family man, as somebody who spent his lifetime opposed to injustice of any form, and who's someone who thrilled at being able to help people achieve their full potential and make a real difference in their life. And someone who got to see most of the world. And I'm fortunate and blessed and full of gratitude that I've been able to do that so far. And we'll continue to do. 
Well, you've made a difference today. You've made an impact, like I said, on me, the listeners, the wisdom. You showed up today and brought it, Jason. So I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Jesse, I love you. And I am filled with gratitude for knowing you. I really am. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. And that standing out is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered on this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.